Well, the first thing that I think has to be as clear as possible is I'll call it the the unified, consistent value proposition that gets created all the way from ground up to the CEO and can be articulated vertically in the organization, horizontally in the organization. And every customer says the same thing about the value proposition. So the simpler that you make the value proposition, the more repeatable it can be to say. And the more you focus your attention on uh, replication of that, the better it is from a value proposition. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott, and in this episode of MedSider Radio, I'm chatting with Mark Toland, a veteran medtech executive who is the CEO of MMI, a startup medical device company in the robotic space. MMI stands for Medical Micro Instruments, and it's an Italian company that's developing a surgical robotic system capable of performing microsurgery on capillaries, small vessels, and other parts of the body existing robotic technology can't reach. We're going to dig into the robotics arena and chat about things like growing medtech startups, raising venture capital, positioning for an acquisition, and keys to successful commercial launches. But first, here's a bit more on Mark's background. Before MMI, Mark was the CEO of Corendus, transforming the company into a leader in vascular robotics before it was acquired by Siemens for over a billion dollars back in 2019. Prior to Corendus, Mark was at Boston Scientific for over 15 years, serving as senior vice president where he built the company's global solutions businesses and led all aspects of the U.S. commercial team's cardiovascular businesses representing approximately $4 billion in revenue. He also serves on the board of directors for Cardiologs, a cardiovascular AI company, as well as Amplitude Vascular Systems, an intravascular lithotripsy company. He also serves as partner and EIR at Biostar Capital, a healthcare-focused venture capital firm. Mark got his bachelor's in business from the University of Louisville. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I want to mention a few things. First, since you're listening to MedSider, you're probably aware of how expensive it is to run clinical trials. Anyone who spent time in the medtech space knows that you typically need to commit hundreds of thousands of dollars, oftentimes millions, towards clinical research. But it doesn't have to be that way, and here's why. Proofpilot is a new kind of hybrid clinical trial platform that enables you to run decentralized studies at costs that are 40 to 80% below traditional approaches. This is how they do it. First, you can easily design a trial in the Proofpilot Visual Protocol Designer using their extensive library of templates. Next, you can launch those trials to participants and virtual staff without any technical development. Skip the integration of disconnected providers because Proofpilot pulls it all together seamlessly. For example, you can recruit, consent, and retain participants, then schedule, remind, and collect data, often with minimal manual labor, manage site data in real time, query adverse events quickly, and review data and preliminary analysis within hours, all in one compliant platform. Get up and running quickly with an annual license fee and launch as many trials as you like with an unlimited number of participants. To get started, visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot. For the MedSider audience, with an annual contract, Proofpilot will provide IRB approval for your first study at no cost. Some exclusions apply, so visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot to learn more. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. 
you'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from MedTech experts, think about a MedSider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a MedTech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful MedTech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Mark, uh, welcome to Medsider. Appreciate you coming on. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's start off by learning a little bit more about your personal background as well as MMI. And then we'll kind of, we'll kind of uh, yeah, use that as a jumping point, right, to get to more, uh, to more kind of lessons learned and, and insights that you've kind of uh, picked up on over, the, over your career in, um, in med tech. But I provided a, a brief intro to your background um, at the outset of this, this conversation for the listeners. But I always like to kind of um, you know, pass the baton to you and, and hear your kind of uh, your high level overview of your career trajectory in, in, in med tech. So let's start there and then we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about MMI. Yeah, that sounds good, Scott. You know, my, my background is, uh, I call it the, the curiosity background. I was always interested in, in trying to find ways into where healthcare was going. The early part of my career, everything was starting to transition from, I'll call it open surgical techniques to minimally invasive techniques, uh, particularly in anything centered around uh, arteries or veins. Um, and so uh, it's funny, I started uh, in open heart surgery doing work with uh, a company by the name of uh, Sherwood Davis and Geck as my, my first job out there. And then transitioned into you know minimally invasive work at Boston Scientific, which attracted me the most to, to that type of company. One of the things that uh, we focused our attention on at Boston was you know, putting ourselves in a position where we could go solve an unmet need in medicine. And we didn't do it with one product. We tr- traditionally did it with a portfolio of products and a solution-based where you were always uh, added value into the equation with the physician. So I learned early on that working hand-in-hand solving clinical problems with physician was really the key to success. It's not so much, you know, do you have a shinier widget it's uh, it's working with physicians to, in cases to go solve solve problems that they currently face today, and if you keep that in your focus uh, viewpoint of, of of developing technology over time, it usually works out well for you. Right, and you ended up spending. Um, you you mentioned your first kind of gig, uh, so to speak, at Sherwood Davis and Gack, and then you spent the. Gosh, almost what fifteen plus years? Then maybe maybe more, maybe close to twenty at Boston Scientific, correct? Kind of moving up the ranks through the uh, in various commercial roles. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I I carried the bag, which uh, I'm super proud of because it gives you uh, some reality to uh, how things work in the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off in the peripheral vascular division, and then over the course of a series of acquisitions, uh, I was thrown into. Um, I'll call it the broad plumbing side of the house, which is uh, peripheral vascular, neuro, and uh, and also uh, interventional cardiology. 
I had a, a unique opportunity to go uh, inside and work in the corporate headquarters uh, to prepare for the launch of our drug looting stint called Taxus. Hmm. Um, that probably was the biggest learning experience of my early career was thinking about uh, how to make it successful as it possibly could be from a standpoint. It's actually still a Harvard Business Review today. It's It was called... Uh, <laughs> It was called 70, 70, and 70 was our, our launch strategy, which meant 70% market share, 70% penetration of drug looting stents. Uh, and we want to do it within 70 days of going up against J&J. And we actually accomplished it uh, not in 70 days. We accomplished it in, in 17 days. Wow. Um, and uh, it was the biggest uh, transformation of wealth at the time from one company to another. We, we went from selling $0 and then 17 days after the launch, we were selling $10 million a day of, uh, <laughs> of taxes. So it took the company from a billion dollar revenue company to a $3 billion revenue company overnight. So that was a, a tremendous uh, learning experience for me on how to commercialize a product in a big field and, and gain acceptance and adoption and, and, and really transform the space in general. Um, I then kind of went from there to do uh, commercial management work uh, out, out in the field. Uh, almost simultaneously to that, we decided as an organization to buy a big uh, big company by the name of Guyton, uh, <laughs> doing, uh, doing pacemakers and defibrillators. So we, we felt like there were a lot of synergies between those two companies, meaning one on the interventional side of the house, the plumbing side of the house, and two on the electrical side of the house. So we continued to try to do leverage models in the organization to see if we could leverage dollars from one portfolio to another portfolio. And, uh, and so I eventually uh, rose up to lead that effort in the United States and uh, ran all the uh, U.S. commercial businesses, which equated to about $4 billion at the time and uh, something like 3,800 employees. It was an it was an interesting time in the company. Boston Scientific was what I call this peak and valley type of company, where it's either doing really well or it's not doing as well. One of the challenges that we faced with the acquisition of Guidant is that we were forced to work through several warning letters and product challenges. So as a result, that's had a, a little bit of a step back, and uh, we really focused our efforts on integrating the businesses together, but then simultaneously investing in the future, particularly in some of the areas that Boston was over, I'll call it over leveraged in. So we were, mm -hmm. we, we had too much business in stents, too much business in pacemakers and defibrillators, and we needed to broaden the portfolio into other products like Structural Heart. Uh, so we made a series of acquisitions that, uh, that I was a part on that helped return the company back to growth and kind of what you see the company today. They're less reliant on drug looting stents and pacemakers than they were previously. And I had a, the good fortune to, to kind of see a lot of that work being done, helped with a lot of the work, and then drove a lot of the uh, results. In addition, one of the uh, last jobs I had at Boston Scientific was doing uh, what I considered uh, building value beyond the product. Um, one of the challenges a lot of these companies face is their products are commoditized and 
just relying upon what whatever best price point that you can get is how they win contracts. And Boston felt like we had more value to bring than just price of a of a stent or price of a pacemaker. So we built a whole global business around it that still exists today. And one of the key differentiators for Boston Scientific, particularly as it relates to uh, their approach with uh, key IDNs like HCA and other institutions that control so much business for that company. I remember I did an analysis at one point in time where 63% of Boston Scientific's revenue came from 75 customers. Wow. Uh, so the consolidation in the marketplace was paramount to the success of any company. And how you dealt with that consolidation was uh, was critically important. Uh, yeah. You had 185 hospitals in the U.S. The decision was made in Nashville, Tennessee, as a good example. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's incredible. It reminds me of a, of a stat, and I, I don't have it handy, but... And I, I wish I did because it referenced um, how much control um, Optum has right now, um, almost you know across the entire healthcare ecosystem, with the small exception of hospitals. Right? It, it's it's an amazing and an amazing amount of of decision making, kind of healthcare decision making power that comes out of one organization. So, yeah, that's that's incredible considering um, considering the the top line you know revenue that you managed. You know that <laughs> that ultimately that came down to you know about eighty. 80 accounts or so. That's incredible. 80 yeah, customers. It was definitely, so. It's definitely, I definitely witnessed the change of the business model, right? It went yeah. from, you know, physician focused early in my career to a blend of, of corporate administration and physician focused. You had that, you know, I called it the, you know, the military approach. You had to have, you know, kind of all four entities, the Air Force, the Army, <laughs> the Navy, and the Marines to go to go fight the battle and and win contracts with some of these huge, massive healthcare systems. Yeah, and it, almost to a certain extent, I guess maybe maybe this is just within certain specialties, but it almost seems like we're we're in this transition period where because of the procedural movement out of the hospital, that we're almost kind of back into a physician, a, a direct-to-physician, you know, we're approaching anyway, kind of a direct-to-physician model within certain specialties, right? You know, kind of back to that environment, especially with the uh, the influx of, you know, office-based labs. And then when you look at like the spine and orthopedics market, like so many of those cases are being done outside the hospital now. It'll be interesting to see, kind of watch that, to see how that, if that you know, that trend continues. Yeah, I think the OBL market's going to continue to explode, particularly yeah. as we as we work our way through COVID. You know, that's one of the areas where you know patients just don't really want to go to hospitals anymore. So yeah. if you can if you can build a really uh, focused OBL, I think it's going to continue to evolve. Right, right, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. On that note, and I know we'll probably spend a little bit of time talking about you know lessons that you learned at Corendus, but you you then left Boston Scientific kind of in early early 2016 to run uh, Corendus, um, which. Um, and you had it. You had it. Seems like an, a, a pretty amazing run um, for you know close to five years at at Corendus and are now with uh, with MMI. So on on that note, I think we'll kind of go back in time and, and I want to ask you some questions, probably especially uh, in relation to your time at Boston and, and Corendus. But for folks that aren't familiar with MMI and what you're doing, you know where you're spending most of your time now, can you kind of give us an idea of um, of what you're doing at MMI and how it's you know how it's different than 
what I consider a, a bit of like the kind of the, the noisy robotics environment, right? Because we're no, we're, you know, it's it's no longer just intuitive anymore. There's there's a lot of a lot of companies playing in this space. So so maybe maybe tell us a little bit about MMI and um and why you kind of made the made the move to kind of take over uh, take over a CEO of that company. One of the things that uh, I did after I was uh, exiting Corindus uh, into or integrating Corindus into the Siemens uh, Health and Ears. Uh, company was have uh, the ability to kind of look around and, and see what technologies were being worked on, um, some decisions that I had to make uh, around, uh, do I want big company, small company? And so when I was thinking about the robotics space, to your point, I wasn't very interested in doing Me Too robotics, <laughs> which is uh, everybody, I'll call it chasing intuitive. And I describe that as endoluminal or endoscopic robotics. So, so they're doing something endoluminal in a procedure, in a surgical robotic procedure. And there's a lot of companies doing it. The large companies are trying to build platforms. The small companies are just trying to find niches. And what I mean by platforms, you know, I'm talking about data integration, machine learning, uh, how it integrates with the robot. And some of the small companies are just trying to find niches that the other companies aren't focused on today. MMI is doing something completely different. So, you know, it's uh, it's a technology uh, that focuses on open surgical robotics. So if, if everybody else is chasing endoluminal robotics, think about everything that's still open. So let's kind of lay those out. Um, you've got plastic reconstructive surgery. You've got uh, lymphatic surgery. You've got uh, organ transplant. You've got coronary artery bypass. You've got trauma. Um, you've got potentially ophthalmology. You've got anything that you need to connect tubes, meaning that you say you need to connect nerves together. You need to connect an artery anastomosis together. Um, all of that work is still done by hand, 100% of it. It's, it's all done by hand, no matter how small the nerve or the artery would be. Mm -hmm. And there's limitations that we know of the human hand, which is uh, the fact that as you age, your tremor increases. Uh, number two is uh, it's the human hand is only so small. So your visualization is less. And, uh, you know, probably number three, it's not quite as precise as a, a robotic approach would be. So. The whole vision of MMI was centered around how can you start to integrate a robotic technology into microsurgery or, or super microsurgery where there's only a few number of physicians that can do it, period. You integrate that with a visualization solution that provides you magnification. And then you're basically taking your hands down to 20x the movements. What the hypothesis of that is, and we've seen in our preclinical data, is you, when you think about suturing nerves and suturing arteries, you know, you're basically sticking and piercing that artery 20 times with the suture. The idea is that you can potentially reduce you know, trauma to that vessel, which trauma to that vessel leads to redos and leads to other problems associated with blood restoration. So we, we, we're an open surgical robotics company we happen to be focused early on on microsurgery and super microsurgery because that makes the most sense. And mm -hmm. we're restoring critical blood flow and sensation and, uh, in nerves and arteries that need to be reconnected. 
that's completely different than all the indoluminal players that are chasing intuitive and the work they're doing. So you, you can imagine you can be a, a physician that doesn't necessarily have microsurgical skills today, and the robot comes right in over their shoulders and takes their hands down 20X, and now they can mm -hmm. sew that artery that's 0.5 millimeters in diameter that they weren't able to do with the human hand before. So it's really going to test the boundaries of what we can do. We don't even really know yet. Um, we're we're yeah. super excited that it's gotten approval in Europe already, and we're start getting ready to start our U.S. clinical trial here this year. But we don't even know the capabilities that it could have. I've got uh, you know physicians from all walks of life, all specialties, interested in doing exploratory work. Uh, you can imagine, you know, pediatric cardiothoracic physicians that are working on you know, babies' hearts. You can imagine the neurosurgeons that are trying to understand, hey, does this have applications up into the brain? Uh, hmm. Because nobody's ever seen a robot this small before, and nobody's ever seen the precision movements that we've been able to accomplish. Got it. That's that's super interesting, and I love I love kind of your your high level kind of breakdown of the robotics market, right? Like you've got all these players that are as you, as you mentioned, kind of chasing after intuitive in the endoluminal space, but then MMI is taking a completely different approach. Before we kind of get into you know dig into your background a little bit more, and I, I get the chance to ask you kind of some more pointed, you know, advice related questions. When you think about MMI and like what's ahead over the next you know two to three years, what excites you the most? I love the exploratory aspect of this. So one of the things that excites me is that nobody's ever done it. There's no blueprint for it. Um, you know, there's it's, it's something that you walk arm in arm with the clinicians in a discovery mode every single day. So when when you're looking about testing the the technology, and and there's there's not a, <laughs> there's not even you know, a clinical trial published on this work yet. You're talking about, you know, creating a frontier that that doesn't exist. That that to me, you know, gets me excited to leave my fingerprints all over an area of medicine to evolve into, you know, a dramatic patient outcome benefit for people that need, you know, critically restoration of, of blood flow and or nerve capacity that weren't able to receive the care prior to this technology it can really have a dramatic impact on, on patients. Got it. Yeah, that's cool. It'll be, it'll be fun to, to see kind of, kind of that, that exploratory or discovery kind of uh, process kind of play out over the next few years. And then, and then j just to make sure that, uh, that I understand things correctly. So you've got with MMI, you've got an approval uh, in Europe. It sounds like you're ready to, or you're close to kickstarting trials here in the, in the U S is most of the, the R and D based in Italy then? It is, yeah. It is, so okay. we've got uh, we've got three big goals in the next twenty four months. You hit the nail on the head. Uh, we're going to selectively commercialize uh, in Europe. We've got CE mark approval. The second thing we're going to do is we need to go do some clinical trials and collect clinical evidence, and particularly aligned around getting FDA approval. So we're going to do a trial to do that. We should have that complete by. Uh, early uh, 2022 and likely have a U.S. commercial launch by the end of 2022. So three things, uh, yeah. European selective launch, um, U.S., I'll call it a U.S. IDE trial, and then commercialized in the United States uh, sometime in late 2022. 
all of the uh, all the tech dev and and all the manufacturing is is based in Italy. It was an interesting discovery session for me on that when it came to the capabilities that uh, the team has over there. You know, one of the things that uh, is probably an unknown secret uh, in particularly in Pisa is there's uh, three universities that focus their attention on uh, biomedical engineering and even uh, the field of robotics. So the mm. the talent pool is uh, is significantly high for well-educated biomedical robotic engineers that are looking to do some cutting edge work. We've got a team of over 50 people in Pisa today and growing to close to 100 by the end of the year. And uh, I, I've been just thoroughly impressed uh, with the, the caliber and the, the type of people that we're able to recruit into the company from Italy that have such a, a profound background in, in the space. It's really allowed the company to accelerate their development efforts. You know, one of the things that I brag about all the time about the team and what they did is they, you know, they built a, they're probably on, I'll call it a third version of the robot. And uh, it's done, it's completed in Europe, and it's only took them five years to do it with about $25 million of, of capital spent. If you were to ask me just randomly how long it would take and how much money it would take to go start up a robotics company, I would say it'd be seven to 10 years and it'd take you 75 to $100 million. Hmm. So they, they did it in half the time with a third of the money. Wow. So I, I don't want to, I mean, that brings up a, a question that I, I, just, I didn't necessarily have on the list, but I mean, if as you've thought about that more, right, their ability to move, to not only innovate, you know, come up with like an innovative approach to a, to a product, but move extremely fast and, and be really efficient with capital. I mean, are, have, have there been a couple like key things that, you, that you've learned kind of as you studied that or like what, what really drove their ability to execute in that type of fashion? Well, one of the things that I think it, it it worked. So here's what worked well. You had uh, three co-founders that I think had the common vision and and had uh, the experience to all consider it compartmentalize uh, the the work. So hmm. uh, one of the co-founders uh, spent you know over a decade at Intuitive. Uh, you know worked on the XI, the current product on the market today, and just has a tremendous amount of experience. And then a couple other of the co-founders were the the young guns who really you know, well like go build robot right go go build prototype and, and come back and see what we got so they built mm-hmm. a, an alpha model within within two years they built a beta model within three years and then they've got the well we've got kind of our third ish generation in five years so I think it, it was a combination of the experience the vision. And just the the go get work done uh, hmm. to go build the prototype that I think makes a difference, and you can do that a lot easier in these smaller companies versus these bigger companies. Sometimes, you know, I think what companies will do is they'll say, "Hey, let's go hire a hundred engineers to go build a robot." Sometimes that's actually counterproductive. Right. Um, you know, they they this team started it off small, smart, and. Uh, and with the uh, with the whole idea of, of let's go build a product, see what we got. And right now, the nice thing is that they've compartmentalized the work into hardware, software, and instruments. So you're able to move quickly on all three areas of, of building the robotic platforms. And then along the way, they did a really 
impressive effort of, of ring fencing the intellectual property. So I think we've got close to 30 granted patents with another 80 filed right now. Uh, so that's a wow. lot of patents for a company that's only five years old. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, it seems like you've uh, you, you've got an impressive team to work with, and I, I love your I love kind of how you um, like sort of summarized that, right? You've got someone it sounds like a founder that had a tremendous amount of domain expertise, but then a couple others that were you know that didn't sort of like intellectually think they needed a, a much bigger team. They just said, well, let's go do this. Let's go build, you know? <laughs> um, right. you know, and so it didn't have any sort of preconceived notions they just were willing to like get their, get their hands, uh, hands dirty and, and go get it. So no, that, that's, that's great to hear. Um, and for those interested in, in MMI and learning a little bit more, we'll, we'll certainly link to it in the, in the show notes for this specific interview. But I mean, what, what is the best place for someone that's intrigued by this technology or wants to learn more? Like, would you direct them to, to the website? Is that the best place, Mark? Yeah, definitely yeah. the website. It's just such a pioneering early field of medicine, uh, yeah. being microsurgical robotics, that you're going to find a lot on it, even if you were to Google it. So if you go to our website, uh, you'll be able to get uh, a good insight into the, the product itself, the Samani surgical system. We're continuing to ramp up the, the videos of, uh, of our work to date. Uh, we've completed our, our first in human in, in Europe uh, and looking to get that published here soon. So you're going to continue to see and hear more and more about the MMI and, and the technology, but you won't find a lot out there in the on a Google search. So Got we're, it. we're checking out our website. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.